Okay, so my friends, hands up if you have been in church like a long time or a number of times. So I'll qualify this, whether you're here in the room or watching at one of our sites on Sunday or checking us out online. If you have been to church like over, let's say 150 times in your life, put your hand up. Okay, very good. Put your hand up online. Keep your hands up here in the room and online or at one of our sites. Keep your hands up. Take a look around. Take a look around. Okay, hands down. Uh, if you've been at church maybe a little less than that, say like around 100 times or over 50 times, uh, put your hands up. Okay, for those of you who are online, less than the, the first group, yep, take a look around, take a look around. Okay, hands down. If you have like been to church, uh, been at a church or, or visited a church like for a short time. So let's say under those numbers that we just talked about, whether it's in the last year or month or weeks, or maybe this is like your first time hanging out, put your hand up. Okay, online or at one of our sites, hands up, making the newcomers very, very uncomfortable. I'm very sorry, it's for a good reason. Okay, it's fascinating, it's fascinating that like I didn't have to uh, create any preamble there. When I said, have you been to church? It's interesting that nobody had a question around like, well, what do you mean by church? Like, what, do, you, do you mean something other than like a Sunday morning gathering? Immediately, it seems that all of our brains go right to, okay, where am I during the holy hour between 10 or 11 and 12 on Sunday morning after which we go to Swiss Chalet? Everybody kind of gravitates there right away. And it begs the question, like, what are we doing here? What is it that we are physically, emotionally, spiritually doing here, whether in the room here or uh, at one of our sites? Like, why are you participating in this very religious gathering uh, on a weekend when you could be doing anything else? I saw a TikTok video this week about a place about an hour north of Toronto that has all-you-can-eat brunch, and one of their feature menus is chicken and waffles, eggs Benedict. Like, you could be there instead of here, but you're here. Now, why is that? Why is that? Why do we do this instead of something else? Why do we have this rhythm and routine as Jesus followers or as church attenders or as a religious person to be somewhere specific in a certain building and in some traditions in a certain seat at a certain pew or you come in during a certain song every single Sunday, week over week over week over week. It begs the question, does Jesus just want to see us on Sundays? Is that important in the mind and heart of God? That God somewhere in the cosmos like rolls over Sunday morning, clears the blear from his eyes and like takes out his attendance checkboard, sees your name, sees you in your seat, checks you off, rolls over, goes back to sleep. What is the church called to do, called to be, and how is the church called to serve in our lifetime, in our existence, and in our posture, in our position of faith? So friends, are we called to church attendance on Sunday? Does Jesus want to see us on Sunday or are we called to follow Jesus in sacrificial love and to be oriented towards peace? That these are the markers of our gathering as Jesus follows. That's totally a leading question. That's absolutely a leading question. It is the second one. 
It's the second one. As Jesus followers, especially in this time, in this age, in this season, as, as, uh, in the life of us as believers, as a gathered body, and as a church, as part of an Anabaptist tradition called the, the BIC, the Be in Christ in Canada, as part of the meeting house, what is the unique perspective, voice, and ideology that we have when it comes to gathering together as a called out body of Christ followers that represent his body called the church every single day of the week, not just Sunday. So welcome to part two of our series, Churchianity, where we're examining and leaning into the question, like what does it look like to be a more Christ-like Christian? And last week, just by way of review, we talked about, okay, at the, at the center of it all, like what does Jesus save us from? Is it hell? Is it eternal, eternal conscious torment? Uh, or is it that Jesus saves us from sin and separation, that Jesus saves us um, through, by grace, through faith, and that Jesus saves us through whole, uh, to wholeness and communion? And then what does the body, the saved body of believers, which is what we are called, the called out ones, sent to do and be something, how do we live this out every day of the week, that our relationship and connection with the divine within the body of Christ is not just predicated on the same seat, at the same time, in the same service, the same church, and the same denom denomination every single Sunday. Okay, so that's my intro. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of um, uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 13 to 25. The book of Matthew chapter 16, um, verses 13 to 25. Now, throughout the series, we're going through very familiar texts uh, as part of the gospel narrative of Jesus um, from a, a couple different vantage points. Last week, we talked about um, the book of Luke and what Jesus meant when he meant separation. Today, we're, we're angling in on Matthew's gospel, which is like Jesus as the new Moses, the new Exodus is happening, and there's a new kingdom that's being, being oriented, inaugurated in the person of Jesus, and then there's a new kingdom people that are fellowship, fellowshipping, gathering together as the body of Christ. And so this is a a brilliant text in Matthew's gospel, and it hones in on something that oftentimes, at least for me, that I've, I've missed. Okay, Matthew 16, verses 13 to 25. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 25. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is. Son of Man is, is a title that Jesus uh, uses for himself out of Jan Daniel chapter 7 and also out of Ezekiel. These are, this is a prophetic word uh, description title that he has for himself of somebody who sits and is equated with God the Father in the heavens and has all authority in heaven on, and on earth. So it's already a loaded question. It's already a loaded question. Who do people say that the Son of Man, the person who sits at the right hand of God the Father, the Ancient of Days, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, who do people say that he is. It's a bit of a leading trick question, just like how we got things started. Well, they replied, some say like he, he's offering this to the small body of people who have gathered his disciples who are sorting this stuff out. They say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So contemporary philosophers, religious teachers, uh, people out of the rabbinic tradition, prophets who are trying to correct uh, um, Israel's faith pattern at the time, and also possibly one of the, their forefather prophets who, who rebuked and corrected Israel and their pathology. It could be that you are the son of man, could be that you're John the Baptist, it could be that you're Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say? Who do you say that I am? There's only one answer. Who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the anointed one, son of the blessed son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn it from any human being. And now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock or Cephas. And upon this rock, I will build my church, my ecclesia, my gathering, my called out ones and all the powers of hell or Hades or Sheol will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. And then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. No more public spectacle. The religious people do that enough. No more public spectacle. You're gonna see why this is important. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, his final resting and resurrection place, the city of God where everything will change. It was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of, whoa, the elders, the church folks, the Sunday morning attenders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. But again, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord and Master, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. (laughs) You're a dangerous trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to actually be my followers, you have to give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But... If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Okay, okay, okay. This is a banger of a text. First of all, did you notice where Jesus um, has taken these like ragtag country bumpkin group of young adults to? He's taken them to Caesarea Philippi. Now, previously, if you're familiar with the gospel text, in particular, um, chapter 14 and 15, Jesus has been working in and around Jerusalem and then has gone back to Galilee and now is coming back down towards Jerusalem. And all the way through his gospel ministry there, his good news ministry there of healing and saving, he's crossing um, uh, bodies of water to heal demon-possessed people, people who are locked into the... um, exclusion of religion and religious people are following him. Matthew chapter 14 and 15 and 16. Leading up to this example, the religious people are following him and are testing him, trying to trap him. You don't know how the church works. You don't know how our faith works. Uh, You don't know how the rules respond to what it is that you're saying. Why don't you get this right? And now curiously, when Jesus takes his uh, early disciples here to the area of Caesarea Philippi, guess who is absent? the Sunday morning church attenders, the teachers of religious law, the lawyers, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they will not go. They are absent in the scene. Now, why is that? Uh, Jesus takes them to uh, a mountainous region in and around Caesarea Philippi, probably around Mount Hermon, um, to, to a very spooky place in the religious world, in the religious mind, in the Jewish consciousness at the time. Now, in the Old Testament, this region was known as Bashan, and it was a place of the very... Um, sinister and evil reputation. And Jesus is taking these people there with no equivocation. He wants them to learn something here. He is widening their view of um, people's identity 
in faith, people's identity in the kingdom. According to the Old Testament, the people of this region, uh, back in the book of Joshua, and even uh, back a little bit further in the book of Deuteronomy, this region is believed to be where the spirits of dead warrior kings and conquerors lived. And that at a particular cut in the rock, uh, in and around Mount Hermon was this place called the gates of Sheol, or the gates of the dead, or the belly, the entrance, the portal to the underworld. The entryway to the underworld, literally translated, not the gates of hell that some of our translations have, but the gates of Hades, or the gates, the, the door to Sheol. It was also an ancient pagan religious center, certainly at the time of Jesus, of um, of, of Zeus. There had been uh, much architecture, architecture and monuments, uh, idol worship um, uh, altars that had been built up to celebrate and worship uh, Zeus. And this specific spot, most scholars agree, not all, but most scholars would agree, was a spot where the worship of Pan um, was known to take place. And Pan was a, a goat-like human uh, fertility god um, who was like a, a wandering sheep among um uh, the sheep herd. Jesus will later call himself the great shepherd, the gatherer, the caregiver of the sheep. Pan represented the exact opposite of that. So in the form of a, go of a goat, this was known to be the pagan red light district that was always open for business. People would often bring their own animal sacrifices here and would also offer their own bodies to the animals, if you know what I mean. So everything that is counter to the way of God, to the law of Moses, uh, to the rabbinic tradition, to the, the laws that were upheld of cleanliness and purification, um, of being set apart for, for the will and the way of God, of Yahweh in Torah, th this is obliterated in the specific spot in Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus takes his church, his earliest followers there. He gathers them, I imagine, like at the mouth of the rock, this place of idol worship, the belly to the underworld. I envision him putting his hand on a part of the rock that was uh, this, this opening that represented all that was evil. There's no other rabbinic uh, tradition or religious tradition that writes about any teacher being here, portraying a new way or an old covenant understanding of God. Jesus takes his earliest disciples, brings them up to the mouth of this rock, like I said, puts his hand, I envision, on this rock and asks them a question. So then, who are people saying that I am? Now, they would have likely been overwhelmed, be like, we are in the belly of the, what are we doing here? Like, why, why, why are we here? You've, you've, you've healed people, you've cleansed people, and now you're taking us legitimately into the belly of the beast. Who are people saying that you're in? You are, we don't know, John the Baptist, um, maybe one of the prophets, maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah, like, let's just get through this. And then Jesus asked them again, okay, that's what people are saying. Who do you, my followers, called out ones who have followed me here in the absence of religion and religious leaders, who do you say that I am? In other words, what should we do with this? In other words, is following me, is following Jesus, same question for us today, just a matter of great teaching, great learning, sitting in my comfortable seat and just getting fed and fed and fed? Is it just a helpful life-orienting philosophy that gets us through the day or the week to deal with our pain? Or, or should our understanding or answer to that question affect our entire life's direction, our entire worldview? N.T. Wright points out that what you say about Jesus affects your entire worldview. If you see Jesus differently, everything changes. Jesus' question in Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? This is N.T. Wright, a well-known New Testament scholar. 
Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is an invitation to take personally and seriously the possibility that maybe we need to see everything differently as the church. So, does Jesus just want to see us on Sundays? Or is the course of our life in following Jesus meant to be radically changed for the better, come hell or high water? First, as a church, what are we called to? Is it just Sunday attendance? No, we are called to Jesus. We are a Jesus church. This is where you would say, amen. We are a Jesus church church. We are a Jesus church. We follow him, learn from him, want to embody him, and we want to invite others to do the same. If we're here, if we're gathered together under the name of Jesus, being the church that we are in this time and place, that's what we're signing up to be a part of. We are a Jesus church. You still with me? Still with me? Still with me at one of our sites watching online? Okay. Take a look at uh, verse 13 to 16. It's fascinating, fascinating. Verse 13 to 16. Okay, so they come to the region of Caesarea Philippi with all the information that I've just gathered you. He asked his, his disciples a general question. Who are people saying that I am? What's the rumor? What's the, what's the tea that's being poured here? And they reply, well, who knows? This, that, or the other thing. Um, then he asks uh, them again, who do you say that I am? And the eldest, the eldest, Simon Peter answers. This is also the Simon Peter who will later betray Jesus. This is also Simon Peter who will have his name renamed and his outlook reshaped. This is also Simon Peter who will stand up in front of thousands of people and give a gospel presentation based on a historical retrospective that will invite the spirit. This is also Simon Peter who will birth this new church, this new way who many um, people will learn from. This is also Simon Peter who um, hears about and interacts with Cornelius, uh, unlocking people from the shackles of religion. Who do you say that I am? There's only one answer. Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, son of the blessed, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, well, it's more nuanced than that. No, no, you're blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has given this, revealed this, spoken this to you. You didn't learn it from any human being or any pagan idolatry that surrounds you or any harsh sense of shackled religion that's taught you a certain way. You are freed up to live and commune with the living God because you are following Jesus. Jesus is Messiah, son of the living God, the anointed, the incarnation of God who invites us to follow him. And where does Jesus invite us to follow him? As the gathered body of believers, the ecclesia, the called out ones, Jesus invites us to follow him. He leads us back to life as a body that has overcome death. Jesus invites us and leads us back to life as a body that has overcome death, that the gates of Hades, hell, Sheol would not prevail or conquer, that the power of death that leads away from God and lures lures people to religion or idolatry into a life that walks towards dehumanization, a chasing after shadows of darkness and away from the light will not prevail or endure because of Jesus. As Dr. Michael Watkins, a New Testament professor at uh, Fuller Seminary puts it, who I've learned so much from. Um, If if you're into reading commentaries, uh, Dr. Michael Watkins, brilliant, brilliant. He says, the gathered community exemplified in Matthew 16, the gathered community Jesus created and will continue to build forever, is made up of people who have responded to his invitation, have entered his kingdom and now live in his blessing. 
which is the new covenant. Simply put, those who respond to the invitation of Jesus and to receive the work of the Spirit in their lives in regeneration, a making new, breathing new life into our whole selves and sanctification, the process of the Spirit that makes us holy, that sets us apart, that conforms us to the image and likeness of Jesus, are the body of Christ, the church. They've conquered and kicked open the gates of death and divide. I told you. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does, my friends. And this is what we do as part of a Jesus church. We follow him towards truth and life and we invite others to do the same. That's what we're signing up for. That's what we're signing up for. That's what it means to be part of a church. If we're here, that's what we're signing up for. So we are a Jesus church. We're a Jesus church. And as a Jesus church, we're called to sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Verse 24 and 25. This is like... There are so many comedic elements of the gospel writings, and I feel like this is one of them because I see myself as a reflective and repentant Enneagram 8. Um, I see myself like possibly even chastising Jesus here. So Jesus gives his speech. He's standing at the foot of this, this evil portal. He, he has this wonderful speech about who do you say I am, the gates of hell, whatever you bind and loose, da, da, da. and then he talks about his death at the hands of religion, but that he'll be resurrected, which the, these, you know, early followers, these early church members had no concept of like afterlife or resurrection or regeneration and any like form of punishment or death or suffering. Uh, there was certainly a pervasive sense of divine karma. So you can understand the interruption. Like you just gave this great speech, great sermon. And now you've kind of like tanked at Jesus. You're talking about your own death and suffering. Why would you say these kinds of things? And then in verse 24 and 25, we see that uh, actually, um, 22 all the way to 25, Peter, the rock that will get the church rolling, takes Jesus aside. And what does your translation say there? Began to reprimand him. <laughs> this, he's the, he's the, likely the eldest disciple. So perhaps in his 20s, maybe in his 30s, probably not, I would contend early 20s. He is reprimanding the incarnate deity of Christ, God in the flesh in Jesus. And Peter's like, you know what? I think I need to say, that didn't land well, Jesus. Let me just take you aside. Um, You shouldn't say such things. It offends like our consciousness. Heaven forbid, Lord. He said, this will never happen to you. It's not what happens to us as good and faithful church folks. And Jesus says, you're right, Peter. Man, really glad to have you around. Um, I'm sorry that didn't land well with the focus group. You know, let me go back and practice it again. I'll come back and do it. No, 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 no. Get away from me, Satan. (laughs) That's a dinner stopper. Get away from me, Satan. You're a trap. You're a trap to me. You're seeing things merely from a human point of view, just like this mountain. You're trying to navigate this with your own wisdom and not the wisdom of God that I just said that you had that I just said that you had. So depart from me, Satan, you're nothing but a trap. Uh, Philosophizing or coming to a conclusion that is merely the result of a human point of view and not from God. And then he said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, you have to be willing to suffer, to die, to give up your rights in order to serve the world that needs to experience sacrificial love, self-sacrificing, reorienting love that paints the picture of blessing that God always intended for you to be a part of. Can I give you my greatest example of this experience as part of a church in my uh, first few years as a youth pastor? Permission to riff for a few minutes? Yes. Yes? Um, 
So as a youth pastor, you tend to take a vow of poverty. <laughs> so there we were, me and my other youth pastor friend in his like brutal, broken, beat up Chevy Impala. Um, I say this from experience. I'd been in my buddy Matt's car a number of times and heard this thing break down. And it has like the same death rattle every time you're driving this like a juke, 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 juke and kind of rattles. You've been there before. Yes. Okay. So we're driving and uh, I was living in Edmonton at the time. And we had this like youth pastors ministerial gathering south of Edmonton in kind of a sketchy uh, neighborhood. We thought neither of us grew up in Edmonton. So we're kind of navigating this for the first time. This was before either of us had like iPhones or good data. So we would like add minutes to our phones. So this car breaks down in an area that we are unfamiliar with and we are like out of options. First of all, we don't have money. There is no Uber, right? We don't have money for a cab. We don't have like gas money to fix this thing. We certainly don't, don't have money or like any organizational ability to get this to a mechanic. So I'm sitting shotgun passenger side and he looks over at me and he's like, I don't know what we're gonna do. And I'm like, I don't know what we're gonna do either. Like you got us into this, how, how do we get out of it? And then all of a sudden we feel this like shadowy presence come to my side, the passenger side. It's this big dude with long hair and he like knock, knock, knocks on the window. And I turn to Matt and I say, it, it ends today. Like it's, <laughs> this is it, it's over. We are, we are at the gates of hell and we will be swallowed up. So all of this judgment, just like end insecurity washed over me. What are we going to do? God, I've given my life to serve you and I'm broken down in a crappy car in a crappy part of time, going to a crappy meeting with a crappy paycheck and this crappy dude right beside my car. What am I supposed to do? We roll down the window, assuming that something bad is gonna happen. And he says very jovially and joyfully, I saw that you broke down. I'm actually part of a church in the area. Can we give you a hand? And friends, within 10 minutes, our car was up on a lift taken to a mechanic and they had given us a drive to our meeting. Do you see the danger of, thank you, thank you. Shame on me, but blessings on them. Do you see the danger of the religious mind? That nothing good can come from strangers. Nothing good can come from people that are not like us. Nothing good can come from outside of the church context. And yet everything good happened in that scenario. Why? Because of my attitude or Matt's attitude or his crappy car that kept breaking down? No, because of the self-sacrificial love of people that were part of a church called to help and willing to create space in their schedule. They did not have to. They did not have to. They could have pulled around us and been on their merry way. But this big dude who, in my opinion and estimation, did not look the part, took the time to pull over and say, what can we help you with? We were stranded without options, nowhere where we needed to be, thinking that all was lost. And then immediately we were cared for by people willing to help. Loving my friends as part of a church community means serving means caring for others, laying down our rights and our privileges and our comforts for the sake of another, reforming our lives to make room for those who have less and who need more and who need to experience the love of Jesus through caring community that looks nothing like religion, but looks like Jesus. Sacrifice for the sake of another, living out the practice of love in sincerity. 
Brother Pedro writing in the 1600s, uh, during the wake of the Protestant Reformation that said the Catholic Church did it wrong, we've got it right. He writes a rebuke in the 1600s to the church movement of the day and says, we need church reform, writing in 1672. We need church reform, sure, but we don't need a new theological system. We don't need a new church denomination. We don't need new interpretation of scriptures, nor new <coughs> prophetic perspectives. We need reformation to return to the true gospel of Jesus and then to live it out in sincere, humble devotion to Christ. Brother Pedro, 1672. Wow. Brothers and sisters, we are a Jesus church. Modeling and learning from Jesus' love in order to bring and live out Jesus' peace. We're a Jesus church modeling love in order to bring and live out Jesus' peace. Verse 18 and 19. Now I say to you, Jesus responding to Peter after he's just said the truth of who he believes the identity of Jesus to be, the true son of man, the redeemer, rescuer, the Messiah, son of the blessed, the anointed one. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, Cephas, and upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, my called out ones, my gathering, my pocket that will change the world and all the powers of Hades, Sheol, and not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. This is a haunting section. Jesus is literally handing the keys to, to this small group of kind of like frayed and scattered ideologically and philosophically group of men who have followed him there to this pagan altar site. And Jesus is like, everything changes now. You know who I am. You know who you are. Here are the keys to the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom. You now have permission and authority to bind and loose based on what you've learned and been taught. And you also hold the keys to screwing it up royally, which they inevitably would. You have now the keys to the kingdom. People are looking to you. So he asks in this statement, what will you loosen for people? As the church, as the called out ones, people who are following Jesus, modeling Jesus' love and orienting themselves, living and bringing Jesus' peace, what will you loosen for people? Or what will you shackle people with? What will you free people from? Or how will you chain people up? What will you model for the world? Or how will you model peace, even in the face of death, war, and destruction, which by the way, they would all face shortly. What will you model for the world in the face of death, war, and destruction? Will it be religion, war, or will it be peace, peacemaking? Athanasius of Alexandria, an early church father and theologian who wrote right around the time of the ideology of the Crusades that as Christians, as part of empire, we should paint a cross on our shields and go and kill the Turks as quickly as possible or anybody that doesn't believe. Athanasius of Alexandria writes that Christians, instead of arming themselves with swords, should extend their hands in prayer and open their arms in love. I'm gonna read that again. Christians, instead of arming themselves with swords, should extend their hands in prayer and open their arms in love. My brothers and sisters, 
may I remind us, may we be reminded by the teaching of Jesus here, we are a peace church. We are a peace church. We're called to love and not kill our enemies. As a peace church, we are called to pray for those and bless those who persecute and harm us. We are a peace church. And as a peace church, we follow the example of Jesus and always be willing to die for our faith and never be willing to kill. Instead, we model peace, we bring peace, we live in peace, we orient our lives towards peace, and we will pray for peace. If you're part of this church, that's what you're signing up for. That's what you're signing up for. This is again where you would say amen. So, as a recap, what are we called to as a community? Does Jesus just want to see us on Sunday at the same time, the same pew, with the same songs, the same sermon, the same people, the same Swiss chalet chicken after church and the same nap Sunday afternoon? Does Jesus just want to see you at church on Sunday or is it something deeper or something more? It's something deeper, it's something more. We're called together, called out ones as a community. Friends, I'm convinced, especially now, especially now that we are called to be the gathered ones who follow Jesus, who love like Jesus and who model and offer the peace of Jesus to a world that's dying to learn and experience it. So my friends, does Jesus want to see you at church on Sunday? Sure. Sure. But is Jesus calling you to be the church Monday through Saturday? Absolutely. Unequivocally, explicitly, yes, yes, yes. This is what it means to be part of a church. May we be a community that lives this out and celebrates these stories on Sunday, but embodies it every single day of the week. This is what it means to be part of a church. And so I'd love to end our time with a benediction out of Ephesians chapter three, which is a brilliant writing of Paul, a pastoral letter writing to a church in Ephesus that has also been bombarded by pagan worship. And Paul does not say, pick up your swords, kill everyone in the name of Christ and said, he says, be willing, Jesus is Lord, be willing to suffer because Jesus loves you. You will embody blessing to the world. And if ever you feel like you don't have enough or you need some encouragement, he writes, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we could ask or think glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, including ours, forever and ever, and together we all said, amen, amen and amen.